Welcome to the Northeast Christian Podcast. We're so excited that you've decided to check out our weekly messages. We hope that you're challenged and inspired by what you're hearing today. We'd love to have you join us this weekend at one of our campuses or online at northeast.live. For more information on Northeast, visit us at necchurch.org. If you love the Northeast podcast, subscribe to our channel and leave us a comment or a rating in the Apple Podcast Store. Good morning, y'all. Welcome. Good to see everybody. Welcome. Welcome today for part one of a new sermon series that we're kicking off called Who We Are. And uh, our hope over the next four weeks of the series is for those of you new here to give you a a good idea of that. And for those of you who are old here, mature, sorry, the mature citizens of the Northeast Christian Church, okay, just be a good reminder of you, a reminder for you of who we are. Now, before I get to like the brass tacks of the series though, I want to start by pointing out to you a uh, life principle that I think we've all been reminded of over the last 18 months, but uh, it's good to remind ourselves of it again this morning, all right? Am I right or am I right? True or true? In the moment, adversity, and has anybody been through a little adversity over the last 18 months? Yes? Okay. In the moment, adversity doesn't build your character in so much as it reveals your character, reveals your character. Or in other words, when you drive over rocky terrain, what spills out is what's inside of you. Now, no doubt adversity builds your character over time. I am a firm believer of that. That's actually biblical. Scripture tells us that when we walk through the fires of trials and tribulation with Jesus, we come out the other side more mature with endurance and perseverance and hope and all the things, right, that we want to have. But, but my point for this moment is this, adversity proves who you are now. So my question for you would be this today. Over the last 18 months, we've all faced a lot of adversity. What have you learned about who you are now? I tell you what I've learned. I've learned uh, that we all need to show each other a whole lot of grace right now. I've learned that I need to show the man in the mirror a whole lot of grace right now because ain't nobody been the best version of themselves in 2020 and 2021. You may have made some great decisions, but if you're like me, you made some bad ones as well. And here's one thing adversity will remind you of. It'll remind you that you need God. Whether that be spiritually or physically, man, we all need God. Now, on the flip side, fast forward, though, we've been, we've been at this for 18 months. So I think uh, as a church and as a leadership, uh, we feel like we've lo- learned a lot about our, our church. Um, in fact, there's been like a crystallization of values for us. Values that we feel have risen to the top. Behavioral values that we're willing to put it on the line for. Values that show who this church is at its core. And so over the next four weeks, I'm going to lay out for you those four values. Now, I think there are lots of new people at our church. This whole moment, uh, you know, of adversity has caused a grand shifting in churches where where people are going to different churches or or like folks who haven't been to church in a long time have come back to church. And I love the fact that we got folks, um, you know, coming back to church. And so this will be a great opportunity over the next few weeks for you to find out a little more about us. You know, call this our first date, if you will. We can get to know each other a little bit, and you can find out if you want to go steady with Northeast or not, 
all right? And again, for all of you, you oldies but goodies, again, this just serve as a great reminder. Now, here are the four values. They're in no particular order. I don't think one's any more important than the other. They all, all build off uh, one another. And uh, that's not even necessarily the order that we'll do it in over the next four weeks. But we are starting with number one today. Um, and I think this will be the easiest one for us to swallow because it's so core to who we are. At Northeast Christian Church, we believe that one of our deepest values must be love for neighbor. And that's because that's what Jesus commands us. We are the Love the Ville Church after all. It is our deep desire to earn for ourselves a reputation for the cross-shaped, unconditional, extravagant, self-sacrificial love of Jesus in this city. When people in our church are mentoring the fatherless children of our community, when the wealthy in our church are giving in big ways to provide for their church family and for the poor, when small group leaders are baptizing high school students that they've invested in for years or blessing them as they go off to college, when families are stronger and parents are built up and marriages are saved, when friend groups are formed in this church and you show up for your friends in the good times to celebrate and in the bad times to weep, when that sort of neighbor love is happening here, we are being exactly who God wants us to be. And I just want to cheer it on. I want to cheer on the big moments of that when we collect millions over, uh, you know, or a million and a half dollars on Christmas Eve for, for Love the Ville Outreach. I want, to, I want to celebrate the small moments of that too. The ordinary moments. Because the majority of our lives lived in ordinary moments. Small acts of great love change the world, right? Most of our acts of love are small. That's who we are, church. I pray that's who we continue to become. Now, I'm not shooting from the hip with this. This is uh, Jesus' word. So again, I want to read to you a passage that we read here probably once a month. It's on purpose. If, you are not, if you've never been a person who's committed to memory scripture, this is the scripture I'd tell you to commit to memory first. Uh, Matthew chapter 22, verse 35 through 40. Scripture says, uh, one of them, an expert in religious law, tried to trap Jesus with this question. Teacher, which is the most important commandment? In the law of Moses, Jesus replied, I got two for you. First, you must, what's that word there? Love. Let's try that again. What's that word there? I know, I know the masks are muffling. You're like, Tyler, it's your fault, okay? No, okay, just as glad as you can. Um, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. What's the word? Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law, all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. So really it's just one commandment, two targets. Love, God, and neighbor. The apostle Paul agrees with Jesus. And this is a comprehensive thread we see woven throughout the rest of the New Testament. Galatians 5, verse 6 and 14, Paul says, The only thing that counts is faith working through. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment, you shall... That's right, love your neighbor as yourself. Peter agrees with Paul, 1 Peter 4, verse 8. He says, most important of all, how important? That would be most. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other for covers a multitude of sins. Now you guys are catching on. James agrees with Peter. He says, yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law. Why does he call it the royal law? Well, because it's the king law, most important compared to any other. And it's the king's law, which just so happened to be his brother, right? But... 
He says, uh, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures, love your neighbor as yourself. And then last, but certainly not least, John agrees with James. He says, God is, and all who live in, live in God, and God lives in them. So to be clear, uh, John's, I don't know, pretty plain for us. He says, if there is one chief metric that measures godliness better than any of the rest, then that would be love. The love we find in God, the love we express in one another. Now, I think this is one of the moments of, of great contradiction in our culture because our culture loves the idea of love, the idea of it. Maybe not the cost, but the idea. We love the idea of love and like the human rights and the justice and the kindness and the tolerance and the strong families and tight-knit communities that come along with it. We love that. We love talking about it and tweeting about it and virtue signaling about it. We love love. Only problem is in our culture, we love something a little bit more than love. You know what we love more? Self-expression and self-autonomy. And the problem is, is that self-expression and self-autonomy compared to love, well, they're opposites. Self-sacrifice and self-autonomy are opposites and opposites don't attract in this particular situation. Perhaps that's why so many people are miserable right now. Because we just love the idea of love. But we have this idolatrous obsession with self-expression. And so everybody's pretty much doing whatever they want to. And then they're just sad or angry or anxious or whatever it may be, miserable. And you wonder why. Maybe it's because we weren't created to do life that way. Maybe there's something that we should love even more than our own personal freedoms. This is the word of the Lord. Now, um, I don't just believe that this is true for Christians. Like, as Christians, love for neighbors should be our highest value. I believe this is also true for us as American citizens. Let's just put, let's put Christianity aside for a second. Let's just talk about our country, country that we live in. I think that America would be the very best version of, of itself and its freedom and com you know, national community would be most healthy if we all prioritized love for neighbor over personal freedom. That's not to the exclusion of personal freedom. That's not saying we need to throw freedom out. Freedom is a good thing. Freedom is a vital thing. But I think love for neighbor actually needs to be put ahead of freedom. Okay, so let me explain. Uh, ben Franklin, as an anecdote told of him, one of our nation's founding fathers, it's said in 1778, he walked out of Independence Hall after the uh, Constitutional Convention. And uh, he was asked by one of the citizens in the streets, so doctor, what do we have? A monarchy or a republic? And does anybody know how Franklin uh, was said to have responded? He said, a republic, if you can keep it. If you can keep it. Now, what's a republic? A, pro a republic's a system of, of self-governance where the people and their elected officials govern, different than a monarchy, right? And he says, that's what you got. That's good news for you. You got a republic if you can actually keep it. Now, what does that mean? What does it look like to keep a republic? Well, there's many people who have many different theories on that, but I think Oz Guinness is the best. He's an English uh, social critic. He came up with this idea called the triangle of freedom. 
And his theory is for a republic like America to work, freedom needs more than just freedom. I've diagrammed it out for you. He says freedom requires virtue in order for freedom to actually work. What do you mean by that? Well, if we all just live free and self-express and do whatever the heck we want to, claim our rights all the time at the exclusion of neighbor or at the exclusion of the good of the community, then that's just tyranny. What you need is you need some moral guardrails or you need some sort of common law that binds the community together. And I would suggest to you that law or that virtue would be love. So freedom needs virtue in order to survive. Virtue needs faith, he goes on, in order to survive. What he's saying is, if we're all going to, to have a shared uh, moral, uh, moral set of norms, then we need a shared moral authority as well. This is one of the problems with, uh, again, our culture today. We want the kingdom without the king. And that's why so many people are going in so many different directions with, well, with what they think is right and wrong. So, so freedom requires virtue, but virtue, it, it requires faith. We need God for virtue to, to really work. But faith, back full circle, says faith requires freedom. Faith is not faith at all. If it's coerced, people have to choose it. Can't legislate people to Jesus, if you will. You have to lead them there. Now, you see how all this works? Freedom leads to virtue. Virtue leads to faith. Faith leads to freedom. Which is why I would suggest to you that the very best citizens among us are those who prioritize love of neighbor first. Even sometimes at the cost of self. Now, uh, I'm talking kind of like in a, a sort of obscure terms about love and just assuming that we all agree on a common definition of love. So I wanna give you actually a really, really specific definition of love right now because scripture is actually really specific on what love looks like. Actually, believe it or not, love is not tolerance, according to scripture. Sometimes it's tolerance. That can be an expression of love, but it's not always. Love is not always kindness. Love is not always warm and fuzzy feelings. Sometimes it kind of hurts. Uh, love, uh, love is not always romantic. You always think, I'm in love with him. Sometimes that's not love. That's just chemistry, okay? Um, scripture gives a real specific definition. 1 John chapter 4, uh, verse 9. You ever wonder what is love? Well, here it is. What is love? Okay, here it is. God, um, you just can't say that without doing like the head thing. Okay. God, uh, first, first John, we're reading the Bible. Focus. First John chapter four, verse nine. John says, God showed us how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. What's real love? This. Not that we love God but that he loved us, sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Or in other words, we have an example of love. It's really clear. It's the great example of love. There is no definition. There's no words. There's no person. There's no historical event that defines love better than this right here, Jesus on the cross. John 15, verse 13, Jesus uh, says similar. He says, there's no greater love. What's the highest form of love, Jesus? There's no greater love than to actually lay down your life for one of your friends. And you gotta remember the context of John 15. Where's Jesus when he says this? 
with his disciples in the upper room within 24 hours of his own crucifixion, when he will actually lay down his life for his friends and his enemies as well. So you see, you see the shape that scripture gives to love. Love is shaped like a cross. That's its definition. Love is laying down my comforts for the needs of another. Love is sometimes sacrificing my freedoms for your flourishing. Love is the quality of valuing someone else's well-being even more than my own, because that's what Jesus did for us, right? Or, simple definition here, love, and this is biblical, love is prioritizing another above yourself, no matter the cost to yourself, because that's what we see in Christ on the cross. Question today is, are we willing to do that, though? Because we love the idea of love, but that's what love costs, So let me give you an example about how hard it is. Real easy to define love, right? But applying it and living it, man, that's where it gets hard. Um, Our kids, we all love our kids. Your kids may be the easiest people in your life to love most of the time, most of the time. In fact, when your kids are born, you you better love and sacrifice for them at least a little bit or else you're gonna get thrown in jail. I'm just saying. And and you really don't have an option because when they come out, it's like you're sacrificing sleep, you might as well just shovel money into the garbage can because you're just spending all the money. Like you're, you're, you're sacrificed, just laying it down um, for your kids. And you get very little gratitude in return for the record. It's just, you know, they, it's, a, it's an expectation. And yet you love them anyways. And even with our kids, if we're honest, if we're honest, even with our kids, there's this thing that comes up inside of us sometimes that, that refuses to sacrifice in ways that we know we should. Uh, I read an article recently. This will be convicting for some of you um, about uh, workplace and family balance. Uh, Basically, the, the article was on a research study that proved that if you actually disconnect from work for your family, then you'll pay for it at work. It proved it. Even the most progressive companies that have all the parenting policies, this, that, and the other, the research article uh, found that, that they're no better. There's just this implicit bias that we're not gonna give the promotion or we're not gonna give the raise or we're not gonna give the what to the people who are going to prioritize home over work. So uh, Katie Weishar, uh, she's an assistant professor of sociology at UNC Chapel Hill. She wrote this article on the research project. She said this, trying to balance kids while working or opting out of the workforce for a little while can have severe career implications in terms of hiring prospects and future wages. She says, in a lot of workplaces, there's an expectation from employers that employees devote themselves fully to work. The expectation to work long hours, to be highly dedicated and to always be available can introduce challenges for parents who have other demands on their time besides work. So these parents pay the parenting penalty If employers are making promotion or hiring decisions based on these expectations, which they do, and these assumptions, which they do, that parents can't or won't live up to, then parents may be blocked from opportunities at work. So hard truth here, disconnecting from work for family will make you pay for it in terms of your career. And this is exactly why so many of us don't disconnect from work for our family. Are you willing, here's the question, are you willing, in a, in a culture that idolizes career, that makes it the core of your identity, 
hey, uh, you know, tell me a little bit about you. Well, I work at, you know, like that's where most of us go first, right? In a culture that worships at the altar of careerism, are you willing to be less than your best at work so your kids can be better? If you are, that's self-sacrificial love. But hey, when I look in the mirror, there's far too often where I make decisions based on Tyler's career at the expense of Tyler's family. So do many of us. So don't you see, what's your point with that, Tyler? Are you really making me feel guilty about that one? Thanks, buddy. Glad I came to church. Well, that my point is not to make you feel guilty and so much as to point out how hard this self-sacrificial love is, even with our kids. Even with our kids. You love your kids. Okay, so you know what the Apostle Paul uh, said that the sign of the end times would be? He said the sign of the last days would be? It's an interesting passage here. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. Paul, who wrote like half the New Testament, wrote this. He said, you should know this, Timothy, that in the last days, ooh, there will be very difficult times. For, here it is, for in those days people will love only themselves and their money. So quick pause real quick. What does Paul say the sign of the last days will be? Is it a pandemic? Is it famine? Is it World War III? Is it the Biden administration? Or, or the second Trump administration? You know, bomb, bomb, bomb. Is it, is it a vaccine that's actually a, a secret microchip that's actually the mark of the beast that we're all going to accept unknowingly? Is it that? Is that what Paul says? It's not what Paul says. No, no, no. Paul says it's actually an apocalyptic self-indulgence, apocalyptic selfishness. People are gonna love themselves and they're gonna love their money. And here's how you'll know, he writes, 2 Timothy 3, verse two. He says, they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at God, disobedient to their parents and ungrateful. They will consider nothing sacred. They will be unloving and unforgiving. They will slander others and have no self-control. They will be cruel, hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love pleasure rather than God. They will act religious but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Stay away from people like that, Paul says. Sound familiar? <laughs> now, look, this is so clearly around us every day. It's like the, the air, the, it's toxic air that we're breathing. The interesting thing is that we, we don't call it Nobody calls it apocalyptic self-indulgence or selfishness because that's not very palatable. We have a much more palatable word that we call this sense of selfishness now. We call it freedom. Freedom. We say things like, I love my freedoms. I have my rights. I should be able to do what I feel is right for me. For the record, both sides co-opt these phrases for the issues that are convenient to them. My body, my choice, my kids, my choice, my life, my choice, you do you, I do me, follow your heart, find your truth. I got my truth, you got your truth. 
Tough thing is, is that the second we find ourselves as Christians saying, well, you got my truth and I got, or you got your truth and I got my truth, we've actually stepped outside of the Christian worldview. Because as Christians, we are not moral relativists. We have a king, he has a law, and as apprentices of Jesus, we are to walk in the way of the king and his law. What's his law? Well, you can sum it up in two commandments. I told you about them. Okay, so I want to get practical with you. Jesus actually gives us um, some love tests throughout his teachings. I want to give you three love tests real quick that will help you figure out if you're loving like he wants to, okay? Um, Here's love test number one. Are you a Jesus follower? Well, you should be able to say, ask my neighbor. Ask my neighbor. And then that should tell the story. In fact, what if Jesus did that? What What if that was judgment day? We showed up at judgment day and he's like, all right, all right, Tyler, it's your turn. Come on up here, stand up in front. And I wanna know, are you a Jesus follower? But shh, 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 Tyler, shh. Neighbors, neighbors, come on up. How'd he do? Was he a Jesus follower? What kind of follower of Jesus was he? Test number two. How committed to Jesus' love are you? Well, ask my enemy. Because what does Jesus say in Luke 6, uh, verse 32? He says, if you only love those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. That's easy. If you only do good to those who do good to you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners do that much. That's the, everybody's good at loving their friends and their family. If you only live money to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners will do that to other sinners for a full return. Instead, he says, you want to show people that you love like me? Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward in heaven will be great. You'll be truly acting as children of the most high for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your heavenly father is compassionate. Here's test number three. You wanna figure out how Christ-like your love is? Ask those who can do nothing in return for you. Because when we were enemies, Christ died for us. Though we were poor and he was rich, he gave his life for us, transferred his wealth into us. You know what I found? I found a lot of us love strategically, at least I do. I tend to love people who I can get something back from. That's why I love my family. That's why I love my kids because, you know, that get this reciprocal sort of affirmation and belonging from them. So, so often I like pour into them because it feels good to have that love back in return. That's oftentimes why I love people in my life or choose the folks who I, I want to associate with. It's because they're a little higher up on the social stepladder than me or they have some sort of upward social mobility to provide me. And so I love them to my own benefit, which is really just loving me. If you think about it, it's just kind of, okay, you get the point, right? So here's the question though. The question is, how do you love those who can give nothing to you? Who can offer you nothing in return? Where there's no applause at the end of it, no upward social mobility, just cost. Just cost. How do you love them? Jesus says, in that moment, then you'll know just how Christ-like your love is. Okay, even more practical for you. I wanna give you five, five things that you can do, literally, each week. This is super simple, super practical. In fact, if you do these five things every single week for a couple months, I promise you, you'll begin to reshape the way you love others, right? Five things you can do, okay? I want to challenge you. Make a checklist. Do them this week. Love your enemy. Love your church. Love your neighbor. Love the least and love the Lord your God. 
I can promise you, if you make an attempt each week in one extravagant way to show love to each one of these five, it will begin to reshape you. Find someone who you don't like. Find someone who don't like you. Find someone who might not even accept your love and show them extravagant love every single week. They'll probably think that you're trying to kill them with kindness and they won't like it. They might not even accept your gift, but love your enemy and I promise you it'll begin to reshape you. Find something in your church to do where you can show love to others. There's a lot of need in this church right now. I can tell you something you could do right now neckchurch.org backslash serve and go help us in our nursery and preschool. We've been begging for months. We need people to love our kids over there, right? If you want a real practical way, quick announcement for you. But love, love your church. Love the people around you. Love your neighbor. Find someone in the vicinity of you that has a need and love them. It could be your kids. It could be your spouse. It could be the person next door, the parent on the ball team, that guy at the gym, somebody who's near you at work. You've got those kind of love meters. You can tell when people need a little extra love. So show love to them. Love the least. If there was ever a church that had a plethora of opportunities for you to love the least, it is the Love the Ville Church. Go back and watch the sermon last week or just reach out to us and we can plug you in to the people in our community who need your help. And of course, most importantly, love the Lord your God. This is the source of our love. Back to the list. Can you throw the list back up there? This is why I put it on the bottom. Not because it's least important, but because it's the foundation of the rest. If we don't remind ourselves of who we are and whose we are in the love of God, we will be drained out and empty far too fast. I go ahead and tell you, in God and his love, we've received the greatest gift anyone could ever receive. We've received a gift far more costly than any gift you've ever received because it cost Jesus' life. Far more thoughtful than any gift you've ever received because it's exactly what you need. And far more durable than any gift you've ever received because it'll last us for all of eternity. What a great gift it is. Let me ask you, what do you do in response to receiving a great gift? You ever received a great gift? What do you do? You say thank you. You feel this tremendous sense of gratitude. So the more we understand the gift we have, the identity we have, the deep acceptance we have in the Father, no matter what, the more we'll be able to show love to others. It just flow out of us. Love, love, love. That's who we are. We are the love of the church after all. Okay. Sermon proper over. That was the end of it. You made it. But not to the end of the talking. Um, so... I want to have like a church meeting right now. Uh, I almost wish I could like say, let's turn the cameras off. But we've got, we've got our online campus. We've got so many folks out there who are joining us online. So, so you can join us. Um, I'm not going to turn the cameras off. But I, I, I want to talk honestly with you guys for a second. I always find myself leaders whenever I've served in an organization or lived in a community, I always wish leaders would just do that. Just, just say what's on your mind. Don't give me the politically correct, don't, don't finesse it. Just, t- just talk to me. Talk to me like I'm, I'm your neighbor. I'm, I'm your friend. I'm your brother, sister in Christ. So I just want to talk to you. I, I want you to know that over the last 18 months, there's been a lot of adversity. All of us have had hard jobs and hard lives. We've all had to make really hard decisions. Um, and so the uh, same has been true for us at the church as, as leaders here. And I want you to know that every decision that we've made, we've tried to make it out of a motivation of love for neighbor. You may disagree on the application, 
of our love. One thing we cannot disagree on is that our heart, I promise you our hearts are in the right place. You know, sometimes people mess things up and you're like, ah, oh, but their heart's in the right place. And so I can tell you, even if you think we mess things up, don't, don't question our hearts. Ask any of our team. We've been trying to do the best thing for, for the sake of neighbor love. So like when, when the governor asked churches to close last March, 2020, the first thing we did not do was, was like say, how are we gonna fight this? Or how are we gonna still gather our people on the weekends? That was priority number two. Priority number one was, how are we gonna love our community? Through the food insecurity and food shortage that's coming right around the corner. And y'all were awesome with that. It was amazing. When the city of Louisville reached a racial boiling point last summer, the single, I want you to think about this. The single most racially contentious moment in the history of the city of Louisville was last summer. I remember there was, I was watching SportsCenter or something. There was like a rugby player in Australia who had Brianna written on his cleats. The whole world's eyes were on us. And it wasn't for the derby, you know? And in this moment where things are just so hot and tense, what we wanted to do was just show the, the black brothers and sisters in our community that we loved them. We wanted to walk with them. see if you're still clapping in a second. When the safety regulations got rolled out and we had to mask and, and then we got to take our masks off and then we had to come back and remask this weekend. I don't like it, but I think it's the right thing to do. And making that decision was made out of a motivation to love the least among us. Like we were actually asking the majority to inconvenience himself for probably just a few people. The immunocompromised or the sick, the elderly, people who have kids in their family who may be that way. We're asking the majority to do that for just a few. I can promise you, it's always been driven by love. Now, this is what's been so hard for me. We've tried to make these decisions out of a love motivation. And sometimes people have agreed that's, or disagreed. That's not hard. What's been hard for me is that people have just left over it though. Just ghosted it. Let's call it like it is. Every person who's a part of Northeast in this room has had at least one friend leave the church last year. Maybe 10. If you're like me and you got a lot of friends in this church, it's hundreds. And that has been so hard. On a personal level, it's the hardest thing I have experienced in 10 years in ministry is to watch uh, people that you love leave. Sometimes just, most of the time, just ghost you. Lindsay and I, um, when we got married, we didn't have like, we lived in Cincinnati. We didn't have Louisville circled on the map. We weren't like, one day we want to live in Louisville. No offense, we love the city now. But we came here just out of a sense of calling to, to this church. So we moved to this strange town with strange people that we'd never been to before. We didn't know anybody here. And for almost 10 years, um, we've just, we've you know, tried to pour love into the community. You know, we've showed up at people's hospital beds and graduation parties and done weddings and funerals and tried to faithfully lead song and write sermons week in and week out and just care, you know, just in general care and connect, make the city a better place. And so to do that for, for nine, 10 years, and then to have people just ghost you, dispose of you, 
over one sermon or one leadership decision. It just makes you feel disposable. Tyler, don't take it so personally. Somebody said it to me a couple weeks ago. That's impossible. Life is personal and ministry is so personal. So I'm just being, I'm not asking for your sympathy right here. I'm not. I just want you to know that that has been so hard for us. It's been hard for me. It's been hard for a lot of our staff too. That was the last 10%, last 5%. I want you to know that, uh, that because of that, okay, hurt people hurt people, right? Wounded people wound people. So because of that, I've walked on this stage and put on this mic and served as the preacher and teacher of your church on more than one Sunday with a vindictive heart. I've walked up here wanting to shame those people. There have been times where I've walked up here and just wanted to tell their story and talk about all the reasons why they don't, they're not a follower of Jesus and just not just get even, get ahead. And that's wrong. It's prideful. It's not cross-shaped at all. And I'm, I am guilty of it. And teachers are held to a higher standard, according to Scripture. And so I just wanted to confess to you all right now and ask for your forgiveness and, and tell you that I repent and, and I will continue to be better as a leader. I need to make sure that I walk on the stage and my heart's right before I even pretend to try to speak on behalf of God and to interpret his word for this family. Uh, So what's your point in all this, Tyler? Um, My point again is this. I don't want a thousand kind emails this week of, you're doing great, buddy. We love you. You don't have to do that. Some of you have already done that. I'm so thankful for it. What I don't want is your sympathy. What I want is your empathy. I want you to put yourself in the shoes of other leaders in this community. Put yourself in the shoes of the leaders of this church and recognize that for most of us, we're trying our best. We want to lead with love. And this is an impossible situation for all of us. And yet I want you to come along with us anyways. This is what I want. I wrote it down so I would say it right. And we're going to take communion. I'm asking for you to see this season of adversity the same way we do as an opportunity for us to walk our talk as the Love the Bill Church. That's who we are. The decisions our leadership have made have not been easy or comfortable or perfect. Here we are masked again, right? But the motivation has always been one thing, cross-shaped love of Jesus. We are not in the business of self-preservation in church. We're in the business of selfless service. We do not find life in prolonging ours. We find life in serving others. Our priority is not self-expression, It's servanthood. And our royal law is not the First Amendment. It's the great commandment. We are where we are right now as a country, I believe, because both the left and the right have valued self-expression and self-autonomy as the chief virtue. And while freedom is vital, that's not what makes a community truly great. We know that. We Christians know that self-sacrifice is what makes a community truly great. In fact, that's what Scripture calls freedom. Scripture says that if you want to truly live free, then you must live under the lordship of a crucified king who tells you to die to your selfishness, take up a cross and love. 
that's crazy. But I believe if our country or even just the Christians in this country would stop elevating self-expression and personal freedom as supreme and instead elevate examples, celebrate examples of self-sacrifice and service as supreme, then it would actually solve a lot of these problems. And at the very least, we'd all be a whole lot better at finding compromise. See, when self-expression is our common ground, the only thing we share in common is the fact that I can do whatever I want without your permission. But when selfless servanthood is our common ground, then all of a sudden we hold in common the deep belief that I gotta work for your good and you gotta work for mine too. The apostle Paul says it like this in Galatians 5, verse 13. He says, for you are called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. But through love, become slaves to one another. For the whole law is summed up in a single commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you may disagree with us on how love is applied, but I'm asking you to unite with us on how love should be revered. And that's first place. Let us not forget who we are. We are the beloved of God. Let us not forget whose we are. We are the children of a heavenly father who deeply accepts us. And let us not forget what we are called to do. Love the Ville Church. We are called to love our neighbor because of whose we are and who we are. That's what we remember during communion. There's no better way to seal this moment than with that. So I'm gonna invite Tamara up here. She's gonna share a couple words with you and then we are gonna partake together.